0: So how it happens, I was watching CNN on TV, and they had a report about Japan. I said, wow, that's such a cool place. I want to be an exchange student in Japan. I went to my high school counselor the next day and said, I want to be an exchange student in Japan. And she said, Jim, you know, you don't know any Japanese. That's very random. Hey, look, you're taking German. Why don't you go to Germany? And then I said, okay, let's go to Germany.
1: This is Seeking Startups, a show that gives you an inside look into the minds of ambitious people who are changing the world. Learn about what they're building, their personal stories, and invest in the founders you believe in. Now with equity crowdfunding, anyone can invest in early stage private startups. So listen up because you might just discover the next unicorn. I'm your host, Maxim Davis. And today on Seeking Startups, we have Jim Chu, the founder of Untapped Global. Jim's unique upbringing and decades long experience in emerging markets have given him a unique perspective, leading him to start Untapped Global. Untap Global is a platform that helps investors make impact investments in emerging markets. Untap Global uses a model called Smart Asset Financing, which leverages technology to de-risk investments by tracking the use of funds in real time. Listen in to hear how Jim hopes to create lasting global change with his company. Hey, I would like to quickly say that everything you hear in this podcast is for educational purposes only. This is not financial advice and I'm not endorsing this company. Please do proper due diligence before investing in any startup. Okay, now with that out of the way, let's get started. Jim, how do you explain untapped global to someone who first hears about your company?
0: So we're trying to reshape how international investors, American investors invest in emerging markets. Emerging markets are some of the fastest growing uh, economies in the world, but there are few opportunities, and it's very difficult to invest in in an African entrepreneur, for example. Mm -hmm. So, what we've created is, on one hand, a different kind of investment model that leverages data to make that investment. So, we basically finance smart assets and use smart assets as a way to recover our, our financing. And then on the other side, we make it very easy and transparent for somebody sitting in San Francisco or Seattle or Minnesota to invest in those entrepreneurs, but also see exactly what is happening with their money and get a return in a short amount of time, as little as six months.
1: And so how does the platform work? Um, So in terms of the investor, if someone wants to go in and invest in a company, how does that work for them? And then also how does it work for the capital recipient on the other side?
0: So maybe it might be useful to start on the other side, on the capital recipient side, if you don't mind. So, on the capital recipient side, what we find are tech-enabled startup companies that have a smart asset at the core of their business. So, that could be an IoT Internet of Things-enabled motorcycle. It could be an IoT-enabled water treatment system. It could be even a point-of-sale device. All things that are making revenue, making money for the operator or the entrepreneur, but also have data Directly associated with the use of that asset. So, point of sale systems. uh, Obviously, you're you're processing uh, financial transactions. We know exactly how many dollars and cents, or naira, or rand, or shillings that device is capturing. Hmm. And so, what we can do then in our financing is we say, okay, we'll finance those machines, but then we'll take a revenue share of what you're making from those machines. So, if you're a motorcycle taxi driver in Uganda will take a certain percentage of uh, of the lease payments or of the fares water treatment system will take um, you know x, x cents per for every liter that you sell and so the benefit to the entrepreneur and for the financier is that there's full incentive alignment the entrepreneur wants to make as much money as possible with that asset so they want to use it as much as possible mhm And at the same time, for the financier, us, we're making more the more they use it. And for the operator, the entrepreneur, they don't have to come up with all this money in order to become a Uber driver. They don't have to come up with all this money to install a clean water system in the grocery store. They don't have to um, put put up a huge amount of money to start providing digital payments to the customers if you're a small merchant. So that's really the benefit to them. And From an investment standpoint, the way it changes, the reason it changes how investing is done is normally you go to somebody and say, you need money. Okay, well, let's look at your balance sheets and and let's put some collateral on the table. You don't have any collateral? Too bad, we can't give you any invest in any uh, financing. Or worst case, we mortgage your house. Not everybody has a house to mortgage. Not everybody has even a balance sheet to work off of. So this model does two things. It opens up the doors to more people being able to get financing. Now that's through an asset, but they're getting essentially the means to make money. And two, it makes the administrative process for managing a loan much lower, much more scalable. So instead of sending a loan officer or a credit officer out to thousands of borrowers, You create a IT system that monitors the assets for these thousands of borrowers and automatically take a certain percentage of the revenues so that there isn't thought, well, I have to repay my lender. It happens automatically. And then the third is because it is all IT driven, we can manage risk in a different way. Now, and this is somewhat uh, an obscure concept, but I'll say it anyway. You know, in a traditional lending model, you're always looking backwards. Okay, how much money do you have? How much money did you make? Um, You know, how how long have you had your job? And we'll use those things to assess a credit score. In this model, we're actually looking forward. So you may not have had a huge long history with W2s and salaries and whatnot, but you know, you've been working as an Uber driver for the last year and a half, and guess what? you've gotten really high ratings on your, on your Uber scores. So you're probably a pretty good bet to be an Uber driver. So we use that to give you a car subscription. And now when you start making money, we keep looking at the data to say, hey, this guy's doing pretty well. So we'll keep financing him. Or if you look at the company that's actually managing those vehicles, we say, okay, you've done 100 of these vehicles. And of the 100, you're doing a really good job on recruiting the right drivers. So we'll give you another 1,000 vehicles to deploy and on and on and on. So the risk management is both ongoing versus backwards looking, and it happens in real time because of the real-time data integration. So in all those fronts, it reduces administrative costs, makes lending to small businesses much more scalable, it reduces the risk because of the way we lend the money, and it provides access to financing to a much larger group of people than who currently have access to money in emerging markets.
1: And so if I was someone that was interested in investing in one of these um, companies abroad, what would the process look like for me to to do that? So
0: right now, and we're launching a platform and that's what we're raising on the crowdfunder platform, we're launching a platform in April and in November of this year, 2022, Um, the ability for any investor to come on and invest as little as $500 dollars, and that money goes into a diversified portfolio of assets. that includes motorcycles, cars, water treatment systems, POS devices, propane gas stations, all of that. And you buy into that and you essentially get the revenue stream from those assets. But we guarantee and fix the income that you get from it. So if you're doing a 18-month a maturity note you get paid 9%. You're doing six months, you get 6%. So, uh, per annum. Mm-hmm. And so, we're trying to provide to the uh, investor both liquidity and a good return. And when I say liquidity, obviously, you can't pull it out right away, but um, six months is usually a very good time frame for people. They know that they're not going to, they can put a thousand bucks somewhere and not have to touch it. So, That's being launched in April for accredited investors. And then in November of 2022, that's being launched for non-accredited investors, Mm -hmm. the retail investors. And the only difference between the two, really, there's not a huge difference in how we do things. It's really the compliance aspect for the SEC.
1: Your upbringing seems to be a precursor to the work that you do today. So let's rewind back the clock and um, start with your parents because they have an amazing immigrant story. And um, can you talk about how they came to America and how they ultimately realized the American dream?
0: Yeah, you know, I didn't really connect the two dots in terms of what I'm doing today and their story until actually fairly recently. Um, so my, my parents immigrated from Taiwan in, in, the, uh, in the 70s. They were fairly well educated and had um, uh, licensed jobs, if you will, in Taiwan. But when they came to the U.S., like many immigrants, their qualifications didn't, uh, didn't count in the U.S. Hmm. So, they became um, business people and they took the fairly little money they had. I mean, it wasn't your, um, you know, the 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 mythical story of $5 in my pocket and making it. But, you know, they, they had just enough and they uh, invested that into businesses and real estate and ran them and basically grew their wealth from a hundred thousand dollars us back when they landed in the country and that's all they had mm-hmm. to many many millions today where they can you know, live uh, on a beachside house in southern california wow and i and i didn't think about this very much until i was um at my my father's uh, 82nd birthday and he was going through the story and he was talking about how um, he would take one property and then borrow, borrow from a bank and then be able to leverage that and we all know it as real estate investors, but I realized that for most people, access to that kind of financing to grow your wealth does not exist. Mm. That access does not exist. So the, the story of what my parents said in the United States wouldn't be possible in a Kenya, wouldn't be possible in a Nigeria or a South Africa today, because the financial system generally excluded them would exclude them, I should say, from that wealth generation engine that uh, works so well in the United States. And so what we're trying to do with Untapped is really to bridge that gap in markets like Kenya, South Africa, Nigeria, Mexico, Indonesia, etc. But you know I, I think you know looking back to my youth, you know, my parents were always working their asses off. And they're always trying to figure out, okay, how do we make it work? And it took them about 10 years to be in a comfortable place,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. right? But they were pretty stressed most of that time. And they were always trying to figure out how to access the next financing. And that somehow, some way, I think impacted me in two ways. One is uh, it was very entrepreneurial, right? They had to just make things work. And second, um, it taught me a little bit about uh, the importance of the financing system, the financing institutions and how important finance is to create leverage and create wealth.
1: And so um, speaking more about you, as a child, you had a, a wide ranging curiosity. You loved to learn. You were active with skiing, but you also loved to be creative by working on small engineering projects. Um, what do you think fostered this curiosity in the, in the beginning?
0: Well, I I think just living in an environment where those things were all possible. So, uh, you know, I like to say that uh, talent is evenly distributed around the world, but opportunity is not. And I was very lucky to live in an environment where I could do all these different things. You know, these little quote-unquote engineering projects. I was never an engineer, but I I, I was always fascinated with them. And I was, again, fortunate enough that my parents uh, indulged me on those things. Oh, I want to build a hovercraft. (laughs) they indulge me on it. Oh, I want to build, build an underground bunker. Why would you want to do that? They indulged me in it, right? So, I think it was really living in an environment where those things were even available to me. And, um, yeah, you know, I never really understood how lucky I was to have those kind of opportunities until much
1: later in life. I see. So, moving on to your education, um... When you were, you know, in grade school and younger, did you did you enjoy going to school? Was it something that you enjoyed? Or yeah,
0: absolutely, did. Um, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed school. I I have two daughters, and uh, you know, one of the initial um, uh, not disagreements, but discussions we had was you know how involved we should get into our kids' homework and so on. And um, you know, my wife would always, oh, we got to help, but we got to help. I was like, you know what? Let them figure it out. <laughs> Let them figure it out because I always just figure it out, right? And I think that creates a certain amount of self-reliance that a lot of kids don't ever get because they're always being helped. And right or wrong, my parents just weren't that involved, at least not putting pressure on me to quote-unquote do well in school. And so uh, I just figured it out. and had to figure it out. And you know, fortunately, I, li- I lived in a you know, stable family environment and so on and so on and had good teachers. So I didn't have any trouble at school. Um, but I think that figuring it out myself, uh, creates a certain amount of self-reliance that creates the entrepreneurship that makes me who I am today.
1: And so whenever you were 15, um, you became an exchange student in Germany. Um, that's, you know, something that many people haven't done. So what was that experience like? That was a
0: great experience. And I think, again, uh, going back to what we were saying about opportunity, few people have that opportunity. So how it happens, I was watching CNN on TV. Okay. And they had a report about Japan. I said, wow, that's such a cool place. I want to be an exchange student in Japan. I went to my high school counselor the next day and said, I want to be an exchange student in Japan. And she said, Jim, you know, you don't know any Japanese. That's very random. Hey, look, you're taking German. Why don't you go to Germany? And then I said, okay, let's go to Germany. But, you know, just think about that for a second. A A random idea turns into action. And again, you know, my parents indulged me and said, yeah, sure, go for it, you know. We'll let you go for one year to live with a German family we don't know and at 15, right? And so I think that alone was a, uh, a major shift in my life, of course. But then also, of course, the experience in Germany and really understanding how different different cultures live Different places are, how language affects things. That was an eye opener for me overall. And that's what led me down the, the road of international business.
1: When we come back, you'll get to hear how a Stanford education in international studies influenced Jim's global perspective. But before that, here's how you can personally invest in Untapped Global. Untapped Global is currently raising up to $1 million at a $14 million pre money valuation on WeFunder. Funding is currently open, but is scheduled to close on April 30th, 2022. But if they hit their maximum funding limit before then, the round will automatically close. If you're interested in getting more information, check the show notes where you can find a link to their funding page. With no surprise, based on your background, that international uh, background, you decided to study international relations and uh, quantitative economics at Stanford in the 90s. And then you also received a master's in international policy studies. How did this education shape your view on global relations um, compared to what, like, you know, you had thought in the past?
0: It's interesting because I think a lot of things I learned back uh, in my undergrad and graduate years um, weren't actually that helpful immediately after I graduated. You know, I just went into a job. I went and worked for Cisco Systems and I learned how to just do your typical things, you know, Um, financial analysis, uh, sales leads, marketing. Uh, Dealing with uh, big company politics, etc. But I think it was only uh, when I started getting out as an entrepreneur, and especially as an entrepreneur in emerging markets, that a lot of the things that I I learned while I was in uh, school uh, became relevant. So I studied a lot about Germany and Japan uh, in the early 20th century. I studied about the East Asian tigers, as we called them back in the 90s, uh, the rapid economic growth and one of the i think biggest learnings that is not that clearly stated in in, in the textbooks is how important the equitable distribution of wealth and opportunity because that's what wealth brings opportunity was to the equitable development of those countries and the robust economies that exist in those countries today i see right if you look at you know taiwan for example it wasn't until after the land reforms that everybody got a piece of land and therefore, had wealth to be able to manage. To and then all bunch of people created small businesses, which then led to bigger businesses, which led to initially toy manufacturing, which led to radio manufacturing, which led to computer manufacturing, which led eventually to now, you know, um, Taiwanese company manufacturing pretty much all the um, the most advanced chips in the world. Right. That started in 1950 with land reform. Mm-hmm. And, and so today, what we're doing now, I guess, is a reflection of my learnings from, from university in the sense that, wow, and the importance of small businesses in changing the economy long term cannot be overstated. The importance of small businesses for overall economy and economic growth, even in a large developed country, cannot be overstated. And so anything we can do, anything the U.S. government can do, anything that I can do, anything that the Kenyan government can do to foster entrepreneurship, innovation, and the development of small businesses, whether they're very innovative small businesses or your typical corner store small businesses, that's all important for the long-term wealth and prosperity of every country. I think one of the things I learned in the last 10 years working in emerging markets I started off as a volunteer doing volunteer work in Haiti and other places like that is I've I've come to conclude very, very strongly that uh, development and wealth doesn't come from the outside.
1: Hmm.
0: It doesn't come from aid. It doesn't come from charity. Not because those things are wrong from, from inherently wrong, but you know, when you have outsiders coming in to fix things, it never works as well as people who are from those communities fixing things. So the, the real only true path to development and prosperity is enabling people in the economy, in that community, to solve their own problems by fixing the market gaps that exist in those markets. Hmm. Right. So uh, entrepreneurs don't have access to finance. Fix that. Fix that, and right. things will fix themselves long term. Right. Uh, people don't have access to clean water. Well, fix the access for entrepreneurs to, fi- to solve that problem, or help the Haitian government solve that problem better, and they will fix themselves. But when outsiders come in, oftentimes things get screwed up for a whole host of reasons. And so I think everything that we're building here at Untapped, Untapped Global is to really fix the market gaps that we see and that we can address. So that entrepreneurs can fix the problems
1: themselves, right? And so you—you you quickly mentioned that you worked at Cisco, and you have had many different roles in your career, like Cisco, and then you were a board member of Asylum Access. You were a founder of a company called Watering Minds. Out of all the different roles you've had in your career, like what has been the most impactful, and and why?
0: You know, I I, I would say that um, I didn't really wake up until the last 10 years. You know, I think in the 90s, when I worked for Cisco, in the 2000s, when I started investing and when I started um, doing startups, um, I was kind of going through what you're supposed to go through. Or even, you know, if we look at my time at Stanford, um, I was going through what you're supposed to go through. You're supposed to graduate. You're supposed to get a degree. <laughs> you're supposed to get a good job and and make some money. Those are all things you're supposed to, and I played by the rules. You know, this is how you're supposed to do things. You're supposed to go raise money like this. And this is how you're supposed to run a startup and all these rules. And then when I started going into emerging markets, initially as an entrepreneur and an investor, and then coming to, you know, 10 years later to what I'm doing now, started realizing how wild west the real world is. There are no rules. The rules are the... Rules of economics that I learned in college. The rules are the rules of uh, human interaction and dealing with organizational politics that I learned um, at Cisco, but also um, dealing with international NGOs and, and, and entities like the World Bank and so on. And so I think I really came to a much better understanding of how humans in the world work. And you know, obviously, the, the untapped global business model is quite complicated, um, but it's directly informed by all the problems that we and I specifically saw as an entrepreneur, as an investor working in those markets. And so I think it's really, and I've been very um, very, uh, I, The only word I can say is just very excited and motivated and, and happy, if you will, in the last few years because I'm seeing all that stuff I learned over the last 30 years kind of come into a focal point at Untapped Global of doing something that I think, that we think, not just me, I hope, not just me, we think can really be world-changing, can really transform how financing gets done in emerging markets. That's not just a, a tagline for us. We really believe two things on a it's on the cusp of a market inflection point of people using data more and more and more and of also of um, people changing how they invest. It's about digital investing. It isn't going through your stockbroker anymore, right? Right. So those two things, that's independent of us. But we're riding that wave of digitization in emerging markets and riding the wave of digital investing in developed markets, combining that and creating a whole new investment model that is global and really reaches down to those who have been left out of the system.
1: So you said that you you had this new perspective in the past maybe decade or so. And would you say that's because of all the different careers and?
0: Yeah, well, oh, I I would say not just careers, all the crap that didn't work. Yeah, you know, going back to what you're asking about earlier, uh, I tried a lot of things when I was a kid. I tried a lot of things when I was an adult. I tried a lot of things when, in the last ten years, a lot of those things just didn't work, right? But every single time, I did something, whether it worked or not, was a learning process. Like, oh, mm-hmm. okay. Trying to raise CapEx financing for water sites in Haiti through the UN is just not going to work. Uh, Raising CapEx financing to scale flexibly uh, who we serve clean water to in Haiti through charity money is not going to work. Um, Raising money from a PE firm um, to finance this kind of business in Haiti doesn't work. So what does work? Actually, nothing. So why don't we create something that does work? So I would say that all those things, both failures and successes in the last uh, 20 years even have really informed um, you know, what we're doing today. I mean, I, I use a lot of negatives there, but you know, one of the things I, I saw as a positive was um, venture investing and the power of investment to change lives and change um, to, to allow entrepreneurs to solve problems. And so, I think that's where I combine, okay, well, those kind of traditional funding methods don't really work to solve the problem. But wait a sec, it did solve a problem. Why is it that 20 years ago, barely any Africans had mobile phones? And today, 60% of the population have mobile phones. That was an investment phenomenon. That was a business phenomenon that, that succeeded. So, how can we replicate that? I'm not going to complain about it. Some people just complain about, oh, gosh, why is it that you can get a Coca-Cola, but you can't get um, clean water? Why is it that everybody has mobile phones, but they don't have you know, access to electricity? Let's just not complain about it. Let's figure out what worked in those models, what worked in telephony, what worked in mobile, what worked in these other areas, so that we can replicate that to deliver the services, the goods and services that people need. So yeah, that's it, and I think that's that's really it's really all the uh, all the heartache, the pain that you know, no pain, no gain, as they say, right? All the pain that uh, that we suffered through over the last decade that allowed us to create Untapped Global today.
1: And so let's go back to when you first had the idea. What was that experience like, and how did you start the company?
0: It actually started um, strangely enough in the mountains of Haiti. Back in 2014, so I had already launched this company in Haiti called Delo Haiti, and we're providing clean water. And today, you know, Delo Haiti still provides clean water to thousands of people in very disparate parts of Haiti. Um, But we, you know, I had this idea of, well, what we're doing in Haiti can absolutely apply globally. And so uh, I was sitting in the mountains of Haiti and, 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 and really was just brainstorming with some friends and said, you know, look, we need to call this company something completely different. Let's call it untapped because it's all about untapped potential, right? I remember it was a friend of mine named Joanne Maislin, Jojo Maislin, who, who actually, you know, uh, brainstormed with me on that name. It's like untapped, untapped potential. See, like, that's what it is. That's what we're going to do. And let's do what we're doing in Haiti all around the world. And initially, our focus was on water with the intent to broaden our focus to uh, other sectors. But it wasn't until um, 2020, really, that we started to broaden our focus to uh, motorcycles and water treatment systems in South Africa and POS systems and so on. So it was a recognition that, you know, I, I thought it would be, oh, water first. And then eventually we broadened it to other things. But we realized that this wasn't a water problem. This was a problem with the lack of access to financing of the right kind of financing in emerging markets. That was the problem. And so, you know, probably because I had spent so many years delivering clean water in Haiti, I didn't have that right mindset. I kept thinking water, 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 but in reality uh, and what was working really well today is that we're solving this problem across the entire economy in places like Kenya, South Africa, etc. Because access to productive assets—what I mean by productive is uh, assets that generate revenue—access to productive assets is a essential need across the entire economy. And this may seem not commonsensical and almost stupidly commonsensical once you say it, but in a place like Africa or other emerging markets, but especially in Africa, where you have such high population growth, you know. Po- Africa is going to go from, it's going to add another billion people in the next 20, 30 years. Billion. Wow. Well, they all need stuff. They all need, of course, food to eat. That's obvious. They also need stuff to um, transport themselves around. Who's going to deliver the chicken from there to there? Somebody's got to deliver it. It's not going to be by foot. It's probably going to be on a motorcycle. If I have anything to do with it, it's going to be on an electric motorcycle <laughs> powered by charging stations that we finance. So, one of the reasons we created this model, smart asset financing, is this recognition that, number one, the current financing models that exist that are readily available in the market, whether that's microfinance or commercial loans or, or grants or whatnot, they don't provide the financing for assets to get people stuff to live. and. Because there's so many more people who don't have stuff today, and another billion being added in the next 20, 30, 30 years that will need stuff, if we figure out a way to finance stuff that delivers services, that is not only empowering, but also has great financial upside opportunity for investors.
1: Hey, I hope you're enjoying the show. But before you hear about the most difficult challenge Untapical Blast faced. I thought you might be interested in hearing a few stats about the company from January 25th, 2021 to September 30th, 2021, Untapped Global generated $237,063 of revenue and had a net loss of $89,303. The company is currently headquartered in San Francisco, California. As of December 15th, 2021. Untapped Global had a $1.8 million revenue run rate. Untapped Global is returning a consistent 24% on its emerging market investments. And the team consists of 20 global team members. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. You know, as you know, as you mentioned, there's lots of failures in entrepreneurship. And so what has been the most complex challenge that Untapped has faced? And how did you how did you over, overcome it?
0: Wow! So uh, lots of challenges. Challenges every day. You know, I think one of the the biggest challenges, and one of the reasons we're launching a investment platform, is this. It's it's a very um, abstruse or geeky problem, but it's it's this kind of chicken and egg problem when it comes to finance and investing. Now you have a lot of investment managers or investors if you will, in emerging markets that understand emerging markets and have access to, you know, good deals to invest in. But raising that money is always a problem. Hmm. And then on the other side, you have all these people building snazzy investment platforms, especially now more and more so with DeFi, but they have nowhere to put that money. Or at least there's a information asymmetry between those who are doing things on the ground and those who are managing these investment platforms. And there's still a uh, size asymmetry between those with the money who want to deploy 20, 30, 40, 50 million at a time and those who need the money, who need 100,000, $200,000 at a time. Sure. So one, and I think one of the biggest challenges that we're trying our best to solve is how do you match those two up? Right. How do you How do you aggregate enough of the financing demand on one hand, so that the investors who want to put in 20-30 million can do that and feel safe? How do you help the uh, entrepreneurs who are looking just for $500,000 or even $100,000 and not have them contort themselves to pitch to venture investors because that's, they, they think that's the only place to get money? but actually take on the right kind of financing that works with their real business, not an imagined PowerPoint business. So I think we're we're trying to be this go-between on those two sides so that we can really raise, aggregate aggregate and raise the money to the right level and size and deploy it to the right people at the right level and size. I know that's a very abstruse um, description, but it's really the core of the problem. Right. It's this mismatch between who needs the money and who has the money.
1: And I I could see how, you know, raising the money, things like that have been, you know, solved. So I could see how that could be solved. But getting that capital to the right people and those smaller check sizes, I feel like is, is a very difficult challenge. And so how are you solving that
0: yeah so so the way we do it is through technology right um actually, let me let me make an analogy that i think uh will, will perhaps illustrate another important point you know there's all this innovation happening uh in decentralized finance and DeFi. yeah um uh and you know when people when i say DeFi, a lot of people think nfts and artwork and cryptocurrencies and speculating as i would use that word on cryptocurrencies Okay, that's there, and that's what's happening today, but the potential for DeFi is much, much larger than that. So with DeFi, you can take small bits of money and at very low transaction costs, move that money around, right? In a traditional world, you know, if you ever, money ever exchanges hands, it's gotta be, you know, legally codified, you gotta have a lot of things in place, and so you can't move a dollar around, doesn't make sense, because it's going to cost you 50 cents to move it around. right? But in, in the DeFi world with smart contracts and technology, now you can start moving things at much smaller scale, much more rapidly, much more efficiently. The way we do our investments is similar. So instead of trying to put legal frameworks, well, there is a legal framework around everything, but a lot of that is automated through technology. So, we will do a deal with a company that manages 5,000 motorcycles. But we'll have the IoT and the tracking and the data systems to be able to uh, track all 5,000 of those motorcycles and contractually capture the revenue streams on all 5,000 motorcycles. So, now we can individually track every single motorcycle, but we're doing it at aggregated scale of 5000 motorcycles. Mm -hmm. So now that swings on over and can be matched almost directly with what's happening on the DeFi side. And people saying, yeah, I want to put $100 into DeFi. I didn't say crypto. I didn't say Bitcoin. I didn't say Ethereum. I don't put $500 into, into that. And that money goes directly into a portfolio of motorcycles. And whatever revenue is generated by those motorcycles goes directly back to those investors. That is possible. Now, I I, want to make sure I caveat, we're not doing exactly that today because of regulatory reasons and the maturity of both of those ecosystems, we're not quite ready for that yet. But that's where the promise is and that's where we're going. The ability to securitize the future revenue streams of things as small as a $1,000 motorcycle such that an investor in the United States can put their money, $1,000, and see that money directly returned, all digitally. It's an exciting future. And again, it's gonna take years to get through the regulatory and the ecosystem, but that's, that's where we're heading. And I am certain we will get there as a company.
1: So you know in entrepreneurship, it's important to have an A-class team and so you've worked with many of the people that are on your current management team. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of those those people and, and what you saw in them?
0: You know, most of the people on the team, I, I met through working in Africa, investing in the act of doing things in Africa, and I got to know them through working with them. And so from the get-go, before even starting to work with them uh, in the same company, uh, I knew two things. One, that they really they really cared Right? They're doing it for the right reasons. They're not there because it's a job, you know. Um, so that's number one. And number two, that they knew what they were doing because they've been working in Africa and they were, you know, if you will, proven in the marketplace already. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, Vincent, Vincent um, uh, uh, he's French. He, um, you know, he's been working in Africa for more than a decade, running companies. Um, building technology, um, pay-as-you-go technology for clean cook stoves. Mm. He's been on the ground, and he's been on the ground in Uganda because for the same reasons I am. It's exciting, it's impactful, and the work that he can do can have a far greater impact, magnitude of impact, greater than what he could do if he were working for Siemens in in Paris. And so. People like him are exactly the kind of people that we want on the team, people who are aligned with the mission and have the on-the-ground skill set to not only get the job done, but to make good decisions when we encounter issues. Uh, Another person on our team, uh, Lundy Strom, she had um, graduated from university in Scotland and went to Africa to just work out of the box. Why not? Because that's what you do. And she had been doing all sorts of things with startups in the ecosystem, community building in the ecosystem, um, new you know a lot of people already uh, pan African uh, in the ecosystem for investing, a of, knew a lot of startups. So she was the perfect person to build our investment community to ensure that we slide in very easily into the investment ecosystem, pan Africa, right? And so. All these people, I, I had, I'd worked with her because uh, she had brought some of her startup companies um, to some of the programs that we had we had put together. And so I had already started working with her and knew that she was legit when it comes to really believing in the mission. So it was a no-brainer when she became available to offer her a position.
1: I would like to go back to to the company and specifically managing risk. And so... You use technology to help manage that risk, but also you have government risk, you have policy risk. And so how do you manage that type of risk in the in the companies that you try to invest in?
0: Yeah, I look, so uh, three ways. One is we try to choose markets and currencies and just general environments where um, there's a good balance between dynamism and risk. So... Uh, even though we are present in, uh, gosh, I actually don't know how many exactly, number of countries now, or over or close to a dozen, I believe, um, we are really focused on four key regions. That's East Africa, Kenya, and Uganda. That's South Africa. That's Nigeria and some of the surrounding countries. And in North Africa, especially Egypt. And those four regions, are, are booming. Not only booming, but they have relatively stable environments. So the Ugandan shilling is actually more stable than U.S. dollar, one could argue, a lower inflation rate than USD. Um, West Africa has the West African franc, which is tied to the euro. The Nigerian naira is not, uh, not as stable, but it's also a huge market. Um, so we, we look at all those factors to choose which markets we go into. Then second. We, and this is very important, we diversify our our portfolio very broadly across these multiple currencies and sectors. So if one thing happens in, let's say, Mali, it's not a huge risk in our portfolio. And I think that's a really um, important differentiator. You know, Some people ask, and one of the first questions people ask is, hey, so, so on your platform, will I be able to invest in a very specific entrepreneur or company? No. And that's not because we don't want you to, it's because we don't think it gives you the right risk return profile to guarantee that you get your money back. Right. And ultimately we want to to guarantee, we want to ensure that people get their money back with a good return. And the way we do that is through diversification. I know that word gets used a lot, and not people, not a lot, not everyone knows what that means exactly. But if you diversify across a whole bunch of risky assets, that means you get more for the same amount of risk that you're taking. That's just a proven financial economic fact, right? And so our goal is to, yes, we're, we're investing in risky countries and risky assets, and risky things, but we have diversified to such a degree that there isn't one thing that will tank the whole ship. And this is, you know, this is the thing that um, I like to say a lot, because it, again, sounds so commonsensical. No matter how troubled a country is, no matter what is happening in that country, people in that country still want to make money. They still need to survive. They still need to use these assets to move that chicken from point A to point B. They still need to sell things. They still need to feed their families. And so... We really focus on that incentive, that I believe fact of human nature to drive things. We don't use oversight. We don't use a lot of you know, fingers in the pot to try to manage, micromanage, it's just not possible. And to a great extent, that's what traditional finance does, right? A bank will go in and do quarterly monitoring visits, do quarterly financial reviews, do all sorts of stuff that are costly, not scalable, and ultimately ineffective. You already give them money out. What are you going to do? Yes, you can sue them. And that's why the legal stuff there. In our case, we just take the asset back and give it to somebody else. We just stop financing that company or that um, business model because we have the ongoing real-time data to assess that risk.
1: That's fascinating. In closing, I would like to ask you one more question. And It's around entrepreneurship in general. So you've had your fair shares of successes and failures too. And so what do you think is more important? Is it more important to be courageous or intelligent?
0: (laughs) Oh my God, that's an impossible question to answer. Um, I think you need to be intelligently courageous. (laughs) I know I'm cheating. Look, you have to pick your war and do everything you can to win the war. But it doesn't mean that you have to win every single battle. Sometimes you just can't, right? And banging your head against the wall um, doesn't help you, doesn't help the people you're trying to serve, doesn't help your stakeholders, doesn't help your shareholders, doesn't help anyone. So you're better off being very selective about what you're courageous about, and then be courageous and don't give up. But I think one of the biggest lessons in my life overall is perhaps not having been selective enough about the things that I choose to be courageous about. Hmm. I think it goes back to the very beginning of my life story of, you know, do I, did I really need to build an underground bunker? No. <laughs> that was probably a waste of my time. Um, so I think being, being selective, being thoughtful and selective uh, about what you're what you're really putting your sweat, tears, brains, loss of sleep behind. That's very important. At the same time, you can't figure out what you are selective about until you've had a lot of experiences. So if you're young, you don't have a lot of experiences, just go out and do stuff. Don't be afraid to fail. And when you figure out what is the right opportunity, what is not the right opportunity, what's the better opportunity, you can only know that once you've had those experiences, once you've failed a few times, once you've succeeded a few times. I actually feel the sorriest for the people who have only succeeded because they will, you know, they'll just come down that much further. I think people who have failed, have gotten up from falling down and have figured and learned how not to trip over the same thing again, or even learn to invent something that prevents other people from tripping over the same thing. Those are the people who add the most value in the world, in our society, to our economy.
1: This has been an episode of Seeking Startups. I'm your host, Max Davis, and thank you for listening to the whole show. Make sure to subscribe and like this episode. Before I let you go, if you're a founder who is interested in getting highlighted on the show, email me at maxim at Once again, thank you. And until next time, keep investing in the future.